0: The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. In almost every case, the familiar is premeditated and the perpetrator uses family members as property, such that he maintains the right to end their lives. Regardless of motive or history, this typically stems from the belief that they are solely responsible for their family's needs. Perpetrators need to maintain their masculinity, which is tied to the family unit, as well as control and power over the family members. When these factors are threatened, they act out against the family violently and fatally. When fearing abandonment, offenders adopt the Medea complex. If I cannot have them, no one can. Exemplified through the murder studies of these cases provide insight into how the psychological processes of marital conflict and parent-child conflict interact. That's Taylor Othout, State University of New York at Albany. Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club, Episode 23, Second Cast, A Wilderness of Family Annihilators. Cuggle up a little closer, loving. Welcome back, Murder Shelf Bookies. I'm Jill. And I'm Tara. For those of you who are just tuning in, we are a real life true crime book club turned podcast. And while we do the heavy lifting, we encourage you to read along with us. We like to summarize each book we pull off our Murder Shelf, following along the author's footsteps, and of course, giving our analysis and opinions. You can definitely count on the opinions. Yes. You can anticipate three episodes for each book. The first two, going through the book, and our third, which we dug, second cast, where we examine topics and threads that we didn't get to cover in the first couple episodes. We hope you're staying safe and healthy, and thank you for listening and downloading. We appreciate the five-star reviews, and truly they make a difference and a warm welcome to our new murder bookies in Zimbabwe. Hello! Hello there! We are so glad you are listening in. It blows our minds that our voices and stories are carried across the world like this. It is just incredible. We now have listeners on all six continents, and it continues to amaze us. Your support keeps us going. Thank you all. Nobody in Antarctica? Not yet. I don't think they measure it. Probably not. (laughs) I'd love to find out, though. One little thing, Murder Bookies, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but hopefully you can tell a difference in our audio equipment. It's new. We've upgraded. And we are recording together for the first time in over a year. Oh, well over a year, yeah. Yes, yeah. well over a year now I'm looking at Paris' face I'm right now Joe, And, and then we're in the same room Oh my god, it's so exciting And we're not in the closet No, we used, we used to record in the closet We have come out of the closet <laughs> Oh gosh We are in an actual recording studio Yeah, You would not believe Well, maybe not actual, but close enough I think it's close, It's yeah. not. Pro- it's not like a legit professional recording studio, but Jill has made a recording studio in her brand new basement. Yep, I sure have. We have tiles and photographs of us on the wall and now microphones and yeah, it's, yeah. it's pretty legit. I mean, 2020, I think, was supposed to be a lot of people's years, but I think 2021 might be our year. So be on the lookout for some fun stuff from merch Self-A-Club. Yeah. Now, Murder Bookies, by now, I think you've kind of figured me out a little bit. And I love research. And I love new information and new theories. Now, previously, I had read the 2010 book by Dr. Neil Wedsdale, Emotional Styles of 211 Killers. Because I know every, everybody has this book on their shelves, right? But I read it just in case I needed to know something about Family Annihilators And here we are, delving into the Jeffrey McDonald triple homicide, right? So, I also happened to come across a 2020 paper by Taylor Aftout that we started the episode with, part of it, from the State University of New York, Albany, Family Annihilators, The Psychological Profile of Murderous Fathers, which was probably the most recent investigation into the subject that I could find. And wow, thank you for the perfect opening statement, Taylor. We just had to share that with you. A family annihilator is a rare killer who slaughters his family. And from 2009 to 2019, there are only 39 cases in the United States. In a 2014 study in the UK by Elizabeth Yardley, David Wilson, and Adam Lines, 59 cases occurred from 1980 to 2012. Now, we know about 96% of these perpetrators are male, and they kill their spouse or partner children, even the pets in some cases. Most of these men are between 20 and 50 years of age, so think like 40-ish, and are likely to use a gun as the weapon of choice. Typically, about 78% of child victims are biologically their own, And after the murders, about 50% of the offenders commit suicide. Some kill the family dogs, cats, pets, ponies, you name it, and (laughs) believe me, they can be thorough. Relatives who happen to come to visit in the hours or days after the first killings can wind up victims. Most of these killers have no criminal history prior to being mass murderers. They're relatively productive members of society. Neighbors speak very well of them. Like, 10% do have that little bit of criminal history, separate from spousal violence. About 44% have, like, domestic violence issues, which can raise those red flags. Red Mountain. Oh, yeah. Yeah, really. In this case, they are not really a red mountain. Yeah. And 18% have expressed jealousy where their wives and girlfriends are concerned. And among the offenders, about 33% have a mental illness Are about 10% have a substance abuse issue. However, in all of these cases, all of them, there are some unsolved problems that contribute to this outburst of violence that no one sees coming because the annihilator keeps his emotions to himself. He struggles to himself. He conceals his discontent, his worries, his burdens. So depending on the research that you're looking at, you can have two, three, or four different types of family annihilators. Most of the research I've looked into delves into the four, so we're going to go with the four categories for this particular episode. Perfect. more categories, the better. Yeah. Yeah? No? Yeah. First up, we have the largest category comprising 32% of all cases, which is the self-righteous killer. These men blame their wife, for their family collapse, and every other problem that has come up. He must retaliate against her. It's really that simple. As the family is at the core of his identity as a successful male if he cannot provide for his family, he is a failure. His attempt to regain control and power is by eliminating the family that is now out of his control. This guy's highly self-centered, narcissistic, given to being a drama king, making mountains out of molehills. Everybody knows them. Oh, yeah. 22% of these killers were unemployed at the time of the homicide, and 78% committed suicide. Now, if you look true crime, you've heard of the 2018 Chris Watts case. This is a terrible, terrible example of this kind of family annihilator. And Watts is thinking, in his mind, gleaned from what he said in interviews since the murders, he and Shannon were under financial pressure. Again, like 23% of family annihilator situations. Now another baby, their third, a son, Nico, was coming along, anchoring Watts to his family and even more tightly when all he wanted to do was literally run off in the explicit shenanigans with his girlfriend, Nikki, who mm-hmm. was fun, free, exciting, spontaneous. So no kids. This was a fun thing for him, not this anchor that he had. Life with meticulously organized Shannon was done. Finally, Watts tells his wife the truth, and on that terrible night when she returns home from a business trip, Shannon gets angry with him. Can you imagine? Go figure. <laughs> I'm pregnant. We have uh, two kids, a family. You're you're a on air. <laughs> I'm just going to say, fine, honey, you go have a beer and let me go to sleep. Yeah. She yells at him, and he's thinking, what nerve? How dare she threaten you down on child support? That can't happen. She just didn't get it. And Watts' illusion of the perfect life he'd had with Nikki was gonna be at risk. He'd be broke. <laughs> what kind of fun could he have with that? Obviously, none. It almost seems like a midlife crisis. I can't remember how old he is, but this is exactly what it seems, right? right? Well, she had to go. She had to be shut up and die. He's in control, remember? So, this is his life now. And after she's dead, he realizes he's in it now. But what can he do? And we you know this is a tough one. Their daughter Bella walked in and saw mom dead on the floor. What to do? In Chris's mind she had to go too. Oh, she's a witness. Exactly. <laughs> and the story would be that Shannon went off with Bella and their other daughter Cece and then he would be able to make a fresh start with Nikki and move on. And unfortunately... All of them died that night at Chris Watts' hands. And as he sought to regain control of his destiny, he strangled Cece, the youngest, then Bella, whose last words were, Daddy, no. (laughs) And the night Chris took his power, figured out how he could live selfish like he wanted, he just disposed of the ones he didn't want anymore, those who were in the way of this life that he wanted to live. And for those of you who don't know, he buried Shannon and put his two girls in some oil towers. Yeah, he's a real piece of shit. Yeah. He really is. You're not going to like any of these guys. Yeah, you really aren't. Yeah, you're not. They're all a bunch of assholes. Yeah. Scott Peterson, he kind of did the same thing. He's stuck with a narrative he doesn't want. He's got a pregnant wife, Lacey Peterson. He's got this husband role. Lacey bamboozled him into this, and it's all her fault. He didn't want anything to do with it, and now he's going to be a dad. He really doesn't want to do this. He's tired of playing the devoted husband. The walls are closing in. Time is running out. And enough. Enough. And he kills Lacey and kills his unborn child, Connor. And he's going to just pick up with the life he wants with girlfriend Amber. No kids, no no baggage, no in-laws. Just fun with Amber. It's very similar to the Chris Watts situation. I, I don't know how... Oh, God, I know the research, but I, uh, killing as the solution in this day and age, it just remains beyond me. So I get it intellectually, but at that emotional level, I just remains so unbelievable to me. And thank God, like I said, it is rare. God, to, to think that normal-thinking people just behave this bizarre and unnaturally, it's just grotesque. And I know we call these self righteous but it just seems like... Midlife crisis. The only result came to taking out their family. Yeah. Which, like we just said, it's mind-boggling. Yeah. I just don't want this. I'm going to just kill it and move on to the next thing. Yeah. And a lot of them do commit suicide themselves. Mm -hmm. Two examples that didn't happen. Yeah. They didn't. That's what happens when you think you're too smart. You're not going to get away with it. Well, Watts was dumb as dirt. I mean, you look at his interviews and you can tell by his body language, he's screaming, I did it. It's just incredible. Even Jeff McDonald. Yeah. All right, our second type of our family annihilator is the disappointed offender. Now, this annihilator also wraps his family unit around himself in terms of identity. This guy's family must live up to his high standards and have to conform to his expectations, usually a perfection. So think this overly zealous OCD guy. And when the family starts to drift away from his ideal of how things should be, he becomes outraged. And he believes the wife and the children have failed him. And, well, you know, they have to be destroyed for this failure. About 29% of familicide offenders are represented by this type. And 38% commit suicide themselves. Their primary motivation for this, about 50% is the breakdown of the family unit itself, so probably some divorce pending. 38% are honor killings, and then 12% have some kind of financial distress going on. Honor killing refers to a cultural norm where the murder occurs because the family has brought shame upon the, the family itself or the family name. Now, 25% of these disappointed offenders are unemployed at the time, which ties in with that family distress. So, you're going to notice that financial situations are tangled into this mix that influences a lot of these different guys. But that is an economic reality that can put stresses on the family. You know, we're only into like five minutes of this episode, but I can't help thinking every time we're talking. It's always the husband. (laughs) <laughs> it always is. Yep. Seems like it. Mm-hmm. So on January second, two thousand and eight, a nine one one operator received a call from a young woman crying out, "Help! I'm dying! Oh God, my dad shot me! Stop it!" It was seventeen year old Sarah Sarah who was in a cab that had been driven by their father with her sister Amina at age eighteen. Their father, Yasser abdel Said, was supposedly taking them out to eat, but instead, he just happened to open fire on his daughters and then fled the scene, leaving them bleeding to death in front of the Ami Mandalay Hotel in Irving, Texas. Police at the time could not track Sarah's cell phone, and she didn't know where she was. Unfortunately, their bodies would be recovered an hour later, dying of multiple gunshot wounds. Earlier that week, the girls and their mother, Patricia, Fled from their home in great fear for their lives. Relatives reportedly told police that their father, Yasser Abdel Said, age 50, had threatened Sarah and Amina with bodily harm over dating, which was an American custom that he did not accept. Amina had accepted a date with a non-Muslim boy, which was completely forbidden by their father, and after the murders, both Patricia and her son, Islam, went into hiding with Yasser Saeed on the run. Mother and son emerged from the candlelight vigil, held as a memorial for the girls. Islam made a point to say that their religion had nothing to do with the killing of the sisters. Quote, religion has nothing to do with this. This is very wrong. End quote. Sarah's remembered as being funny. So, so smart. She made the highest grade in school and loved goofing around in silly hats. Pink was the sister's favorite color. And Amina, a journal writer, planned to go to medical school and be a doctor. It's heartbreaking. So both Sarah and Amina had worked at a Kroger's grocery store, which is where Amina had met her American boyfriend. And she told a friend that her father would kill her if he ever found out, but most thought this was just an exaggeration that she used, and later it was terrible to realize that she had been perfectly serious when she was saying that. Mm-hmm. Saeed could not bend his mind around the concept that his daughters were not conforming to his will, that they were violating his commands, that his control over his family conduct was weakening, that he was being belittled by their conduct, that he was being lessened. So he killed his daughters rather to endure more damage to his honor, his authority, and his self-concept. And although this story was immediately featured on America's Most Wanted, and a $100,000 reward was offered from 2014 on, Yasser Abdul Saeed would be a fugitive for 12 years, until August 27, 2020, when he was arrested in Justin, Texas. Irving Police Chief Jeff Spivey hailed authorities for pursuing justice in this case for more than a decade. He said... Even after 12 years of frustration and dead ends, the pursuit of the killer never ceased. Today's arrest of their father, Yasser Saeed, brings us closer to ensuring justice served on their behalf. So this is pretty this is recent. Oh, yeah. This is one of those cases we didn't hear a lot about nationally, mm-hmm. but it made a huge impact in Texas. What is really disturbing is Islam Saeed, the son and brother of Sarah Namina? Amina, he was arrested for concealing his father from the police during those 12 years. Which is really sad considering he said the whole thing was wrong. Exactly. U.S. Attorney Aaron Neely Cox said, in concealing Yasser Saeed from arrest, not only did these men waste countless law enforcement hours in the hunt for a brutal fugitive, they also delayed justice for Sarah Namina. Amina. Thankfully, their day of reckoning has finally arrived. We are hopeful all three arrests will bring a measure of comfort to the girl's mother, relatives, and friends. Well, we hope so too. Islam Saeed faces up to 30 years in federal prison after pleading guilty, and he's going to be sentenced on April 30th, 2021, by U.S. District Judge Reed O'Connor. Not long now. Nope. That's coming up. Patricia Owens, Sarah, Amina, and Islam's mother, hasn't spoken to her son since the candlelight vigil for the slain girls. The girl's uncle, Yasin Saeed, brother to Yasser Saeed, was also found guilty in a Dallas trial on February 4, 2021, of conspiracy to conceal a person from arrest and conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Justice is coming for Sarah and Amina murder bookies, and we will update as developments occur. So three, two for hiding this dad. Yeah, all three. The whole family's ruined. Yeah, absolutely. Or Patricia's is just marked out. Ugh, it's just awful. Another very different example of a disappointed offender is the March 2004 case of Marcus Wesson from Fresno, California. Wesson had recently been investigated for abusing his daughters and granddaughters, who evidently are both his daughters and his granddaughters. Oh, God. So, he's just morally bankrupt on all levels. And needless to say, this did not go well for him. Social Services was about to break up the family and remove the children from this dangerous and unsafe home and get them very far away. As research will show, when you're about to leave an abuser, This can be the most dangerous and critical time. With law enforcement breathing down his neck in Wesson's imminent arrest, a standoff with police began. Once they were able to get into the home, they found two dead women and seven dead children, all shot to death. They ranged from ages 25 to less than a year old. Wesson was arrested and charged with nine counts of murder and 14 counts of sexual assault and was convicted on all counts. You might ask yourself, why did this happen? Well. The disappointed family annihilator saw it all falling apart. The family unit was threatened. social services and law enforcement were about to take his family away, something Marcus Wesson would not allow to happen. So he murdered everyone, because apparently that's what you do. Yeah. Gives credence to the saying, if I cannot have you, then no one can. Yeah, that's this guy. Mm -hmm. Clearly he had serious, serious issues. And uh, they were trying to stop him. All right, the Anomic Family Annihilator. This type views the family as a symbol of his success and his financial standing. And this means everything to his psyche, his sense of self. He must be successful in his career, and his family reflects the fruit of his labor. The comfy family home, the grand cars, luxurious hobbies. Private schools, colleges, for the children, all of this contribute to his intrinsic self concept. And this image, it cannot fracture. Because if he's failing, usually indicated by some kind of financial struggle, possibly a bankruptcy, then the family unit itself is failing and useless, and therefore they cannot go on. You know, the shame is just too heavy of going forward as a failure. It's just unthinkable. Admitting that he has lost everything to his loved ones is simply impossible. Their disappointment is insurmountable. So this killer is going to spare them for all this horror and pain of having lost everything, and there's just no other option in his way of thinking. So this is the family annihilator that is the most consistent of all the types. The vast majority commit suicide after the murders. The one case that I recall from 2018 is the killer Anthony Todd, who killed his wife, Megan, and children, Alec, Tyler, and Zoe, plus the family dog. They were being evicted from their home in Celebration, Florida. They were in debt up to their eyeballs. And in Dr. Westdale's book, he wrote... Often what we see here is a deep sense of male shame compounded by a highly repressed personality who cannot cope with reality and admit failure. I'm sorry, seek therapy. they are so caught up. It's like losing sense of your own personality. It's like you're dissolving into nothing. No. You know, I mean, if I lost my car, my house and everything, as long as I have my family, I have everything. Mm -hmm. It's not about my house and my cars. But for them... The structure of that success, that status, is, a, is everything. It's who they are. Losing that, they lose themselves. Therefore, nobody else can do either. It's a shame. Yeah. The last category that we have murder bookies is the paranoid offender. And they believe that they are the protector of the family against all threats. Simultaneously, they can be suffering from some form of psychosis that can include delusions, hallucinations, and literal paranoia. So keep this in mind. As a result, people, school officials, everyone is viewed suspiciously. The paranoid imagines that some horrible event is going to occur, perhaps some satanic force is at work, or that they're receiving messages from God, who says that this awfulness must happen. They all must die. And the pyramid annihilator makes it happen. Out of fear of losing their children or, or social services taking them away, or a wife leaving him alone, which would rupture his role as protector, he kills the family. Now he will forever protect his children who can never be harmed or suffer again. And that's about 11% of the annihilators. Yeah. So, are there any staunch baseball fans out there? Anybody who loves, you know, the statistics and all of that. So who is one of the best catchers in baseball history? Let's cue the Jeopardy music. I missed your back Aaron Rodgers doesn't do it for me. wait, <laughs> <Okay>, yeah. <laughs> I know, I miss Alex, too. I can hear you squinting. What is the guy's name? What's the guy's name? I don't know baseball. Who is one of the best catchers in baseball history? All oh, right, Marty Bergen. <laughs> well, he played with the Boston Bean eaters back in 1896 to 1899. The guy played 344 games in three years. Think about that. for the Bean Eaters, the, the former Red Sox? i <laughs> not former. I have I mean, you, no idea. No one knows the words that, that come out of my mouth I'm guessing, right? The preclude. Right. But this guy, out of all the games he played, he played 337 as catcher. Wow. Uh He is really, truly one of baseball's legendary catchers. So from North Brookfield, Massachusetts, Marty had a bit of a rocky start in the minor leagues. He was almost playing for the Pittsburgh Pirates at one point. And he did play with the Kansas City Blues. Love the names. (laughs) So he's really gifted, but he also suffers from mental illness, and this does disrupt his life on and off the home plate. So he had delusions of being poisoned, of being mocked after the death of his son. That did happen. He was also known to sit sideways so he could see the invisible assassins as they were trying to approach him. So, uh, you know, clearly he is paranoid. He's not psychologically well. At one point, he disappeared when Boston was actually in a heated penance race, and no one knew where he was, not the team, not his family, no one. And then out of nowhere, he reappeared and, of course, was cheered like crazy by the fans on his return to the field. No explanation was offered. In October 1899, Bergen had to be removed from the game when he was dodging pitches rather than caught them, because he was preoccupied when he was avoiding knife thrusts from a ghostly assailant that he was battling with. That must have been interesting to see. I just can't even imagine. You're watching the game, but you're also watching this go on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, clearly he realized even at this point that he was ill, and he did seek medical care as well as speaking to his chaplain. He was said to have told his doctor that he refused to take the prescribed medication because, quote, I thought someone in the National League had found out that you were my family physician and had arranged to give me some poison. I did not take it from my wife because I didn't wish hers to be the hand that poisoned me. End quote. I wonder why I thought the National League would be poisoning him. It's never logical. It's always yeah. from the top down. Yeah, well, it's classic paranoia that yeah. one. poor man. Sadly, even with this obvious mental disorder, no one sees this coming. Marty kills his wife and two children with an axe, then uses a straight razor to cut his own throat with such force he nearly beheads himself. It's madness. It was Marty Bergen's father who discovered the bodies. The New York Times reported that Marty Bergen suffered from fits of melancholy and bouts of insanity, and that, quote, his little three-year-old boy was lying on the floor with a large wound in the head. Mrs. Bergen's skull was Terribly crushed, having evidently been struck by more than one blow by the infuriated husband. The appearance of the six year old girl found in the kitchen floor next to Bergen also showed a number of savage blows that had been rained upon the top and side of her head. Bergen's throat had been cut by a razor. End quote. I mean, it's just terrible. Well, I believe he was schizophrenic, possibly bipolar, and he's certainly a textbook example of the paranoid family annihilator. Listen, I'm going to say it again. We need to update our mental health laws in this country. I mean, this is, you know, 1899. We still need to update our mental health laws in this country. We need to fix and update them. We failed with deinstitutionalization, and we continue to see instances where people suffering from mental illness are being viewed as criminals, dying, and it results in tragedy, and we're not getting the appropriate attention that they need. And it really bugs me. Okay? All right. Rant over. Back to the show. And there. Trust me, I know a lot of people feel the same way. I feel the same. You summed it up for the two of us. Okay, there Very good. Research from 2009 to 2019 indicates that 69% of family annihilators are white, 13% Hispanic, 10% black, 2% were Asian, and 1% was Native American while the youngest was 22, and the oldest, 82. So they have become a more diverse group than in previous decades. In 38% of the cases, there were three victims, and 31% there were four victims, with the majority of cases happening in California, followed by Florida, New York, and Virginia, California, and Florida, the states that keep on giving to true crime. (laughs) Woohoo! I'm reading these statistics. This is probably the most... Statistic-filled show, and I'm wondering where Jill has the time. I like this stuff. I know. I, know. There's I wrong still with don't me. know where it comes this. from. <laughs> so the month of August was found to be the prime murder month. Yes, August. I think it might be the heat. I don't. I don't know. Mm-hmm. When do riots take place? It's not in January. Mm-hmm. That's true. People are hot and bothered. Yeah. There's a reason we say they're hot and bothered. Yeah. Especially when you think about oh, back with Sun of Sand, that was in the summer. Mm-hmm. I guess summer break puts all more riskier situations, maybe. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, the month of August was found to be the prime murder month for annihilators, as 20% of murder suicides occurred then, with just over half occurring over the weekend, especially on Sundays. Mm-hmm. So, right after church. This is likely because of a few factors such as summer break from school dads having access to kids on the weekends when they're not working and the children aren't at school. Again, heat. That's what I'm going for. Also possibly estranged dads who had to return children on Sunday with the added stressor and tensions mounting. COVID and quarantining have probably made this worse. Oh, I think so. Absolutely. So I know Jill is looking I guess not necessarily looking forward to, but intrigued by statistics as we've just laid out to see how this type of self isolation, being isolated from our support systems, probably increased some of these statistics. I'm pretty sure they did. I couldn't wait and get that verified scientifically, but somebody's going to get a PhD in sociology or psychology reviewing this. Yeah. So, listen, our deep dive case is going to be on the 1971 mass murder of the List family in Westfield, New Jersey. So, being a Jersey girl, I kind of remember this. I was a little young, but I definitely remember the follow-up story. The List family lived at 431 Hillside Avenue in Westfield, a lovely 18-room home that is definitely a marker of financial success. 18-room huh? Right? A membership in the accorded social strata, your 18-room home. And to all, it appears that John List is a successful man, married to Helen Morse Taylor List, the father of three terrific children, Patty, John, and Frederick. The family attends the local Lutheran church, where John Sr. teaches Sunday school. I mean, husband, father, John List appears to have it all only this was an illusion, a fiction he portrays for the neighbors, and John List felt he was on the verge of losing everything. lot to lose. Yeah. So John Emile List is born to 39-year-old Alma List and her 60-year-old husband, John Frederick List in Michigan. Note the large age difference between his parents. That's a 21-year gap. They met when Alma was a nurse who was caring for a very ill first wife of John List. Alma List was very protective of their only son, who was kind of awkward with a few friends outside family or church. And according to John List, his parents were kindly and affectionate with him. But keep in mind that his father was 60 when John List was born, so I suspect his. Interactions were, you know, more like grandfather than father, no matter what the good intentions might have been. Getting a sweet treat as opposed to playing cat child back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, regardless, List himself was disengaged socially. He didn't run around with the kids in the neighborhood, and he has a rather rigid personality. All grown up, list served in World War II in Korea and was his wife Helen's second husband. Her first husband, Marvin Taylor, had been killed in the Korean War. Back in the 1940s, Helen had actually been treated for syphilis. The standard treatment was to inject her with the malaria virus. It's surmised that Helen had contracted the disease from her first husband. Now, penicillin was still an experimental drug at the time, so it wasn't an option yet. Then, the disease entered the latent stage, where it was dormant for a lengthy period of time. And years later, it likely entered the tertiary stage, where it created neurological problems and dementia. Helen's doctors were told that she had flirted outrageously with other men, which disturbed Lis deeply. Unaware of her syphilis, doctors diagnosed her with latent schizophrenia. And when Helen's health continued to decline, her behavior became more erratic, highly uncomfortable to be controlling with. By 1969, she was struggling to walk, fell repeatedly, and keeping her syphilis a secret any longer was no longer an option. She'd also become dependent on propituates and tranquilizers. So keep in mind, her husband was uptight and obsessive compulsive and stick in the mud. How embarrassing for him to have a syphilitic, drug-addicted wife. This was not even she was working hard to maintain. Mm, No, not even a little bit. I mean, this man is very about church. I mean, that's his kind of center, his social mores, and how things are supposed to be, and syphilis and florting, and he doesn't even enter into his vocabulary. Let alone This is my life. I like that that was from the doctor. She was flirting with other men. Yes. Circling back a bit to when List and Helen's relationship began, it was in December of 1951. And they decided to marry when she actually thought she was pregnant. And it was not as it turned out. Ooh. Would they have married at all if they'd known she wasn't pregnant? Doubt it. Yeah, probably. It seems like it. John debated the issue, facilitating over whether they should marry, but his rigid religious upbringing came into play, and he couldn't come up with any other solution to solve this. Later, Helen unfavorably compared him to her first husband, Marvin. Nevertheless, though, they went on to have three children together with Liz's mother, Alma, living on the third floor of the expansive mansion. 18 rooms, 18 rooms, enough for all your relatives and in-laws. Mm-hmm. John, Jr., 15, was an athlete who played soccer. Frederick was 13, played Little League baseball, and Patty was the eldest at age 16 and in high school. She was one of those theater kids, and she was going to play Stella in the next school play, A Streetcar Named Desire. But she was murdered before she had the chance. And And since John List took religion very seriously, they all attended the local Lutheran church together on Sundays. With Patty pursuing acting, John was actually really deeply troubled by this and very concerned about her immortal soul, as this was improper in the eyes of the Lord. I know acting was so improper. And he caught Patty and friends playing with a Ouija board. Oh my goodness. Clearly. She was going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, anytime these things happen, what you do, you speak to the neighbors, right? So, the neighbors said the List family kept to themselves. Patty was absent from school frequently to help run the household because, some speculated, that her mother had had a nervous breakdown. Now we know about the syphilis, which no doubt played a role in this. John List was a gardener. He was proud of his tomatoes, as one neighbor said of him. They had exchanged comments three or four times over the five years they lived side by side. Friendly. Very friendly guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. His tomatoes. John would wave as he you know, rode on his rider lawnmower across the grass. And the children had thrown a Halloween party in the fall, which is described in the Courier News as being bright and gay. And the children were having a good time. It must have been a wonderful party. So, I mean, the kids are social, and they're having fun, and, you know, he's writing his lawnmower, and, and his tomatoes. I know what it's like to become more anti social. I'm just kidding. I talk to all the time. Okay. And I grow tomatoes, too. I grow tomatoes and talk to your neighbors. You can do it possible. at the same time. You okay. can also even gift a tomato plant to your neighbor next door because they aren't able to have their own garden. That's pretty nice. Okay. Now, List is an accountant with a master's degree and he was briefly the vice president and controller of the First National Bank of Jersey City, New Jersey. The epitome of success. Ah however, he lost his job and then another, which is a factor that's gonna play in his decision to murder his family. Why did he keep losing jobs? He was very rigid about doing the work and he expected that he would be promoted, and get the job just because of his stellar personality uh, yeah. as opposed to abilities. Mm-hmm. Got it. Peter Principal. Yes. Yeah, you do. Love it. Okay. So now for at least six months, List would get up in the morning, put on his suit, the tie, leave the house, and pretend to go to work for six months. He never told anybody that he had lost his job. With that GPS on your phone's. Find your friends. Yeah, sure. Your spouse is going nowhere. <laughs> I'm telling you. Now, what he would do was go sit in the park, take a nap at the train station. I- occasionally, he did meet with an employment agent, trying to find some kind of job. But he's maintaining this illusion that he's still going to work at the bank. So he was behind about eleven thousand dollars on the mortgage, which today is about seventy-one thousand fifty dollars. You doing your today math. I always it. I remembered that, so yes. I made sure I did it. <laughs> okay, mind you, the house originally in the 1960s price was about $90,000. Today, that would be about $802,000. Yeah. yeah, so there's been speculation. Yeah. yeah. So to pay some bills, Liz starts dipping into his mother's account. So this charade is going on, and as he's going on, he's, you know, getting more and more pressure, feeling more frantic. You know, he knows this can't go on forever. He eventually takes a job selling insurance, but at a seriously reduced salary. Certainly not enough to maintain the lifestyle or to bail him out of this huge financial hole they're in, and the, no one knows about this financial hole except. That's a lot of pressure. It it really is. Now, to make matters work, he's taken out a second mortgage, but nothing is going to stop this downward spiral of this financial collapse that's tormenting him. He has failed his family. They're going to have to go on welfare. That is going to be horrifically excruciating, shameful to him, utterly embarrassing him, It's violating his principles of self-sufficiency that he believes in. They're sliding over the edge into the abyss of poverty. His children are teetering on the brink in their Christianity. My God, his daughter's an actress playing with Ouija boards. They're a disappointment. He's frantic, he's desperate, and he decides to spare his family the humiliation of living on public assistance and faced with the world of evil... And deprivation. There is only one way to assure that they will go to heaven. It was November 9, nineteen seventy-one, where John was slaughtered his entire family, shooting them with a twenty-two caliber gun and a nine millimeter pistol. He killed Helen first as she sat sipping her morning coffee. He then went upstairs to his mother Alma's apartment and shot her as she ate breakfast. Then List meticulously carried out errands, planning his exit with great calculation. He left the house and went to redeem savings bonds at the bank, making sure he got the correct interest down to the penny. Next up was the post office, where he stopped the mail delivery and then newspaper delivery as well. Forget about those little details can really get you away. You know, having newspapers pile up, mail overflowing out of your mailbox. Can't let that happen. Nope. Nope. So, heading home, John List made a sandwich. Then, one by one, he shot his three children to death as they came home. List arranged the dead in the ballroom on a sleeping bag while music resembling a funeral dirt played throughout the home sound system. He turned down the thermostat to slow decomposition and made dinner for himself. So, worked up an appetite. I don't know how. I don't know how he's even planning. Oh, my goodness. The calculating list went from room to room, cutting his face out of each family photo. He was ensuring that it wasn't going to be easy for law enforcement to send out a BOLO on him. Be on the lookout. Does it sound like he's going to be one to commit suicide? No. He wasn't going to be able to go to heaven with his family committed suicide. Correct. That's that's it. That's the kicker. Yeah. I know. I know. This is, this is what we're thinking here. Us two. This is the thinking of the Family Annihilator, though. He's so worried about, I can't commit suicide because I won't be able to join my family in heaven. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sure. John List calls the children's schools and he leaves messages that they're going to visit a sick relative and they're going to be absent from school for an extended period of time. Books he borrowed from a neighbor were placed on the table, complete with the required thank you note. He wrote an apologetic farewell letter to some relatives and to his minister, Pastor Rye Winkle. The pastor's letter was also a confession as well as kind of an explanation. Lis slept in his bed that night. A bed he'd shared with Helen since they married 20 years earlier with his dead family downstairs in the ballroom, decomposing, so to speak. Oh, yeah. And then the next morning, he left and went into hiding, starting a life elsewhere, just disappeared. Cold, man. Just, oh, just cold. Yeah. I, I know we've already talked about how the thought process is, but this was so meticulously planned out fact that he just felt that he needed to plan out all these details because if he didn't do it, they were all going to go rot in hell. Mm -hmm. And then if he killed himself, he wouldn't be able to join them. But make sure we cancel the paper because we don't want them to find anybody too soon. Yeah. Because I've got to get away with my new life. Yes, i got to go live out my life and my days so I can die a natural death and rejoin my children. So some insight into motive were included in the letters he'd written, which included the passage, quote, I wasn't earning anywhere near enough to support us. Everything I tried seemed to fall to pieces, and I didn't want them to go into poverty. Which brings me to my second point. They were all Christians. I couldn't be sure of that in the future as the children grew up. At least I'm certain all have gone to heaven now, end quote. It turns out he'd been planning the murders for approximately three weeks a long time. The date he planned their deaths was all seen stay November 1st, 1, 1971. But he delayed it until the 9th. Why do you think that? In doing some research, I found out that he did apply for a gun permit. And I think that maybe there was a delay in getting the approval. And that pushed back his timeline a little bit. So this is something he really pondered and planned carefully. Only they didn't give him that gun. Yeah. A month would pass before neighbors became suspicious of the constantly lit lights, empty windows, no activity in the home, no cars coming or going. A wellness visit by police revealed the horrible truth, that the entire family was dead except for John List. As a huge investigation into the mass murder unfolded, His car, a 1963 blue Chevy Impala, was found parked at JFK International Airport on Long Island with a November 10th parking voucher in the window. As a passport was required to fly overseas, it was unlikely List had left the U.S. Law enforcement confirmed that no one named John Emile List boarded in any outbound flights from the U.S. in the days following the murders. List was still in the U.S. in spite of his manipulative efforts to confuse the situation. But where? Where was he? How could he murder his entire family? The case would actually go cold for the next 18 years. So he lives 18 years longer than his family members. Mm -hmm. Okay, so much for joining me quickly. Yeah, fast forward to May 21st, 1989, where an episode of America's Most Wanted is featuring the story of the List family murders. John List being on the run. Out in Denver, Colorado, Wanda Flannery and her daughter and son-in-law, Eva and Randy Mitchell, are watching and thought the suspect looked an awful lot like former neighbor of theirs, Robert Bob Clark. Bob, an accountant, had moved to Midlothian, Virginia, a suburb of Richmond with his second wife, a friend of theirs. Oh, so he gets to marry a second wife. Hmm. That's him. Oh well. Uh, Eva Mitchell calls America's Most Wanted Hotline and gave them the information on Bob Clark. Now, about 200 tips came in after this airing, and John Walsh, the host, said they received about 20 about the Virginia location, which was encouraging, but nobody got their hopes up. 11 days later... The FBI would put the handcuffs on Bob Clark, who denied he was John List. However, Bob Clark's fingerprints matched those from the gun permit John List had filled out one month prior to the murders in October 1971. John and Neil List had been captured. What wife do you think he wanted to spend eternity with after that? Oh, you won't be. <laughs> Neither. <laughs> America's Most Wanted spokesman Jack Breslin revealed that they almost didn't cover the list cold case given that almost 18 years had passed since the homicide. Having a current photo of the suspect always helps in searching for the Most Wanted. To deal with this, Philadelphia forensic artist Frank Bender was hired to update a photo of John List in his 40s to that of John List as a man in his 60s. Yes. A few photos had survived the scissoring that List had imposed on his family portraits. Frank Bender studied what John List's parents looked like as they aged, seeing what role genetics might have played, plus applied his skill as a forensic sculptor for the case. With the assistance of forensic psychologist Dr. Richard Walter, Bender created a life-size bust of what he thought John List would look like in 1989. Together, they discussed Dr. Walter's psychological profile of Liszt, how the strict upbringing of an only child by older parents, a domineering mother with a church of central focus, would impact a young man with OCD. So Dr. Walter's profile also determined that List killed out of anger and retaliation due to his own failures, not because he was sparing or saving his family from anything, delusion or not. Frustrated due to his social inadequacies, rejected and stymied by women all his life, dominated by Alma, lied to by Helen, daughter Patty pursuing acting against his wishes, List resented women. Add in the anxiety and fear of being caught and held accountable for the murders, List would hold the weight of all this baggage in his face, frown lines, jowls, and wrinkles. Finally, Dr. Walters believed that Liszt would want his glasses to suggest intelligence and success. Likely, a lot more than he actually possessed. I have my glasses. Boom. Thus, Bender selected a dark, horn-rimmed pair of glasses to put atop the bust of the aging list. They would prove to be the coup de grace in identifying the fugitive accountant that night on America's Most Wanted. Bender had done a remarkable job in creating a bus that bore an uncanny resemblance to the real life list. I just had a flashback to that movie, The Accountant, when we said Fugitive Accountant, that starred Ben Affleck. Yes, yes, yes. That's not John List. Arrested, charged, and tried, List was found guilty of five counts of premeditated first degree murder. At sentencing, New Jersey judge William Wertheimer stated, quote, The name John Mail List will be eternally synonymous with concepts of selfishness, horror, and evil. He is a man who could coldly, calculatedly, and cunningly conceive and carry out a cowardly plan Sorry, that's a lot of C's. To assassinate each of his three children. There is something satisfying in knowing that List heard that we did not buy his concern about their immortal souls bullshit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that one, totally. In a 2002 interview with Connie Chung, List broke his silence and explained, we use the word loosely here, his behavior saying, quote, I grew up with the idea that you should provide for your family, and to do that, you had to be a success in the job that you had, or you're a failure. And that was not a good thing to be end quote. He went on to admit quote "I knew it was wrong, as I was doing it, I knew it was wrong end quote asked why he didn't commit suicide, John Liss said to Miss Trump again another quote, "It was my belief that if you kill yourself, you won't go to heaven." So eventually I got to the point where I felt that I could kill them. Hopefully they would go to heaven and then maybe I would have a chance to later confess my sins to God and get forgiveness end quote. The quotes were important. You have to hear what this guy says. He's nuts. You just have to hear what he says. Yeah. On killing Helen, Liz said he got his gun out of the trunk of his car because he'd been practice shooting for weeks in anticipation of this. He then walked into the kitchen and shot Helen from behind as she was drinking her morning coffee. Quote, I approached all of them from behind so they wouldn't realize until the last minute what I was going to do to them. List then went upstairs where his 84-year-old mother was having breakfast, kissed her, like Judas, and shot her in the head. She was too heavy to move downstairs next to Helen, who he dragged and positioned in the ballroom. He scrubbed up all the blood so the children arriving home from school wouldn't suspect a thing. List was a perfectionist, after all. The police would later find a mass of bloody paper towels and rags in a paper bag inside the List home. As the children came in, one by one, he killed them in the kitchen. 16-year-old Patty was first, shot in the head, followed by 13-year-old Frederick, and then 15-year-old John Jr., who was his father's favorite child. <sighs> this by the father, who was known to cheer John on at his soccer games. Unlike the others, John didn't go quietly. As he struggled more, he knew what his father was doing, trying to kill him list emptied both the 9 millimeter and the 22 caliber into his son, reeling his body with 10 bullets. I don't know whether it was only because he was still jerking that I wanted to make sure he didn't suffer or if it was a sort of way of relieving tension after having completed what I felt was my assignment for that day. His assignment for that day. Those are his words. His assignment that is a statement of detachment. He has completely abandoned his own behavior. He is not owning it at all. This guy is totally reprehensible. Mm-hmm. And his sort of way of relieving tension. Yeah. yeah exactly. If he had just stopped at wanting to make sure that he didn't suffer, but he just couldn't do it. Nope. Nope. And he still thinks he's going to be forgiven, so he mm-hmm. can go to heaven and join his family. I'm pretty sure that the forgiveness thing, admitting you were wrong, taking responsibility, and being sorry for your sins, I think that's part of it. Does anyone think that List has achieved that? You know, because he's a religious man and devoted to God. Oh, by the way, he also said he said some hymns for his murdered family that he read out of the family's hymn book. It was the least he could do, his words, again. So just what did he do when he was on the land? Well, he first went to Denver. He took the original name, Robert Pierre Clark, that he stole from a high school in Queens and applied for a social security card. He got a job as a fry cook, which I'm surprised he actually took, considering how he felt about his position in life, and later worked as an accountant for H. Block. He made friends with his neighbor, Wanda Flannery, who introduced him to her friend, Dolores Miller. That's a shocking turnaround from the man that we knew, who was married to Helen. Mm-hmm. Didn't like talking to his neighbors, but now he's friends with them. Took a job as a fry cook. Mm-hmm. But wasn't concerned about his wages. Dolores and Bob hit it off, and she never suspected a thing. Bob Clark told her his first wife, an alcoholic, died slowly and painfully of cancer, and that they had been childless. Mm-hmm. The fact that doesn't even mention children. No, they ceased to exist. In nineteen eighty five they were married in their local Denver church. Having moved to Virginia, Dolores was watching America's Most Wanted from the story on this air, as hubby Bob caught the end of the program. He told Connie Chung he was sweating it out, but Dolores didn't seem to recognize him. He had never filled her in about his alter ego's past. See you how know, that usually happens. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's some unconscious way of blocking something out because you just don't want to believe that that could be your spouse. Like, she she didn't know. When everyone else knew, they were like, that looks like Bob. It's like Superman when he puts on his glasses. Mm-hmm. You can't tell if Clark can't Superman. Yeah. He must not be wearing his glasses as much as in front of here. I guess. So it was his neighbors from Denver who did recognize him and called in the tips that led to his arrest. Again, we feel bad for poor Dolores. She was absolutely blindsided by this whole thing. She literally had no idea. And Dolores Clark issued a statement, reluctantly, quote, I was shocked to hear about Bob's arrest and what he is charged with. This is not the man I know. The man I know is kind, loving, a devoted husband, and a dear friend. He is a quiet yet friendly man who loves his work and the people he works with. End quote. And an unidentified neighbor says this is either the most unbelievable mix-up or he is the biggest con man who ever walked the earth. And unfortunately, it's going to be the latter. Yeah. Big time. And as far as family annihilators go, list is a very, very classic example. Hence why we chose this case to examine with you. He is the poster child for the Anomic Family Annihilator with the overtones of the Disappointed Annihilator. If you recall the four types of Family Annihilators, guys, the self-righteous, I'm king of the world until I'm not. Disappointed. Family, you fail me, now you die. The Anomic. Our finances went to shit, damn you all. And finally, the Paranoid. I'm psychotic and deluded. Everyone dies. Each one has their own trigger, but keep in mind, dealing with human behavior and it's rarely totally cut and dry. Categories do spill over into each other. Dr. N.G. Beryl, a forensic behavioral psychologist, explains the goal of the family annihilator this way. Spare the family all the assaults to their sense of well-being, their sense of normalcy. It reflects very distorted thinking and the very strained and depressive type thinking and desperation which culminates in a kind of terrible act. So, John List, a terrible person, but one who experienced emotional isolation, even at the hub of his family home. His latent disconnect was growing. He's unable to share in social activities fully, keeping much inside to himself where it festered. He rarely exhibited anger or rage, tucked it away. It was kept firmly restrained on his expression of emotion. When he did share with Helen, it was the enjoyment of their socioeconomic status, really his sole source of achievement and pride. And when this unraveled, the emotional suffering that he experienced grew more and more unbearable. He could not part with the fantasy that he had achieved success as a banker, comptroller, as vice president of the bank, and all was fine with the world. So unable to cope with this new reality and the emotional burdens that demanded, Liz could only see one way out, murdering everybody before they knew how terrible it all was and what a colossal failure he was. Oh, Lis got pneumonia and died of complications on March twenty-first, two 2008. No one claimed his body, he's buried somewhere, and I didn't care enough to find out where. The one time. Yeah, sorry. Some of the psychological illnesses that influence this include antisocial, borderline, histrionic, and narcissistic personality disorders. What is significant is that the traits associated with these personality disorders, narcissism, emotional instability, dependency, self-control issues, are believed to contribute to offender victim blaming. Clearly, victim-blaming has to be relevant to anyone who is going to wipe out his family, right? Yeah. Some other traits that increase the risk of familial side is generalized anxiety disorder, shifting self-anger onto others, destructive tendencies, high emotive reactivity, extreme fear of abandonment and rejection and severe jealousy, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, the list can go on. The problem in this kind of research is 50% of the time the killer commits suicide. So determining what was wrong with the individual can only be reconstructed so much. What is really hard to comprehend is that all, all fathers turned mass murderers insist that they loved and continue to love their children. They mourn and they describe the murder of their kids from a distance as if some angry stranger killed them. It's bizarre, but it comes with the territory. Their rage is very much separate from themselves and was caused by the objects needing to be destroyed, which were the family. Once destroyed, this aspect of them is slept off and they can speak of their families with love and remembrance. So yes, according to them, murder is love. That's some mental gymnastics. Oh yeah. I can't wrap my head around that. No. Like I said, I completely understand the research. I can explain it. And I still don't get it. Now, the perpetrator with schizophrenia and or paranoia, not the category paranoia, but like the mental illness paranoia, is experiencing confusion, disordered thinking, delusions of persecution, and additionally, he now views himself as a failure with mounting financial and social pressures and believes his family cannot function without him. Thus, the murders are really extended suicides or mercy killings designed to spare the wife and children's suffering. I'm just explaining it. Again, I think it's all insane. For 9 writers who commit suicide, about 65% from 2000 to 2009 in the U.S., that's about that number do. In a separate study in Britain and Canada, about 50% killed themselves. A much larger study from 1980 to 2009 in Britain, that came in at 68%. The point being is that many of them do succeed at suicide, and depression and or schizophrenia offenders use suicide as a way to be reunited with the family. Okay, so keep in mind that some attempt, but fail to commit suicide. In the larger British study, only 18% did not make the attempt. So the conclusion here is the vast majority plan to die in the execution of their plan. None of this is easy, believe me. And I understand if you are blinking and shaking your head saying what she just said. Mm -hmm. It's a lot to absorb, and it's completely alien to how the vast majority of us think about our families. But it is a big part of true crime. Absolutely. Yeah. And this brings us to another annihilator case. This one from 2009 in Florida one of the leading states in such cases. Mm -hmm. Messick Damas, a Haitian-American born July 2nd, 1976, in Haiti, to Jeanne-Marie Damas, was raised an evangelical Christian. Life was difficult and unpredictable given the socioeconomic conditions of Haiti. Seeking a better life, Jeanne-Marie emigrated to the U.S. when Messick was a small child, and he was left with relatives who were voodoo practitioners. This may have been a bit confusing for him as a small child. But keep in mind, the information on this time is a little bit sketchy. We do know that later as an adult, Messick would speak of evil spirits haunting him being out to get him, the beginnings of paranoia. After immigrating to the United States himself at age 19, Donna settled in Florida, becoming a cook, and began working at a local restaurant called Miller's Ale House in Naples. And that is where he met for Dew. Beautiful, deep, dark eyes, long, luscious hair. She had also emigrated from Haiti as a teenager after her father's murder. Raleen's life hadn't been easy either. She went to Lely High School in Naples and would be employed by a public supermarket for the next eight years. In the news press, she was described as looking as so cute in her little public's uniform. She was a nice, sweet lady. You would know if you met her. She would always look in your eyes when you talk to her. Oh So, the couple quickly fell in love and had four children, three boys and a girl. They married at the First Haitian Baptist Church in a beautiful ceremony on April 14, 2007, with Girlene wearing a stunning strapless gown. As parents and newlyweds, they shared such wonderful hopes for a terrific future together. Their second daughter, Morgan, was born in 2008. Neighbors would see her sitting on the porch in her green uniform wearing her black reading glasses as her children played football in the street, like so many other moms laughing at the antics of their kids. A neighbor, Joselande Noël, would say of Messick, he seemed like a nice person. He would come to our house and play cards with my dad and my uncles twice a month. He would say hello to everyone, and he has such cool parents, referencing Jean and Marie Demas. Landlady Claudia also said that her son Aldo, age ten, was friends with the Damas brothers as they all attended Osceola Elementary School together. Kindergartner Maven was the fastest of the group. First grader Marvin goofed around the most, and Mick Zack, what called Zack by his third grade friends, didn't like to run. They were happy and hyper, and oh, they used to play music all the time," said Claudia in an interview with the news press usually hip-hop or Latin, and she was a very involved mom. Gerlaine went to school, parent-teacher conferences, visited her son's classrooms for special events, and Principal Melanie Fike spoke of the children in glowing terms. They were well-liked by their peers. They were a great addition to the school. Claudia also told a story about Ms. Damas, saying that one day the children were slamming their apartment door repeatedly, and Claudia asked them to stop. Donna shouted at her. That's what the rent deposit is for. We can break the door if we want. Well, that's one hell of an attitude to have. About things that you technically don't own and aren't yours? Well, who wants your children to behave that way? Not a good idea, Dad. Well, not even though. I didn't even think about your kids' act and teaching them lessons. Jeez. But yes. A, a guy who doesn't know how to behave, I would imagine. And challenging authority sounds like he might need to have the upper hand, or even like a woman telling him what to do. Hmm, that too. Hmm. Dennis and Caroline's home life turned out to be far from blissful. Beginning as early as 2005, Dennis had a history of domestic violence against her. At some point, he threatened her, saying, "Quote: Only death would separate us. Divorce me, and I will f- kill you." This repeated in 2006. Charges were dismissed in all cases. The domestic violence reached an apex in January 2009 when Donna's pleaded no contest after an arrest for a misdemeanor battery. At her family's urging, the couple separated and Gerline got a restraining order against her husband. Now at a shelter for abused women, Gerline got counseling. Her therapist noted that she felt completely overwhelmed at the idea of raising five children by herself, which is completely understandable. I don't even have one and I, I, I can't even contemplate. The cat kills me sometimes. Yeah, just the cat. Mm-hmm. My boyfriend does. <laughs> but eventually, you're leaving began to press for lifting the restraining order. I think well, we know where this might go next. Oh, goodness. The record shows that about six weeks later, this is March 2009, Gerline said, quote, She believes a father should be with his children and that she had faith in him, that he would not repeat domestic violence against her. Gerline was ready for a fresh start. She moved into a new apartment on Stratford Place, still in Naples. Damas is not recorded on the lease, which was smart of Gerline in case things with Messick took a turn for the worse again. Meanwhile, Thomas pleaded no contest to the battery charge, was given 12 months probation, was ordered to take parenting classes, and enroll in a battery prevention program. In April, he moved back in with Gurling and her children. Meanwhile, landlady Claudia Frias may have had some misgivings. She had run a background check on the family before renting to them, and she knew about the domestic violence history. Gurling broke into Hears discussing the situation with her, telling Claudia that, quote, everything is going to be better, that God was going to help her out, and she wouldn't have her kids without a father, and Messick is going to help us. And things did appear to be making progress according to the Dunn's case file. He was learning to control his anger, was improving his communication with his children, and you know what? They missed their father. There is a notation about the loving relationship between him and his children, and it was written that, quote, this clinician believes that this family will be a solid family unit once again, end quote. Damas was believed to be working as a DJ, and according to Jesus, Freya's Claudia's husband, bringing in some income. A few days prior to the murders, the Department of Children and Families caseworker assigned to the Damas family made an unannounced visit to their home. In the report filed, it was noted that the children seemed healthy and safe. Thomas was cooking dinner for the family. Morgan, the 11-month-old, was wearing a sundress and playing with her doll, while her older sister Megan looked pretty in pink and was excited to be going to school next year. Their older boys were wearing clean t-shirts and shorts. None of them had any bruises or marks. The caseworker wrote, quote, There is no safety concern. Children are doing fine. End quote. That caseworker was wrong. The Optimus assessment did not pan out, and by December 2009, Gurleen had had enough The changes Damas made would not take root. She informed him she was considering divorce, and that changed everything. Gurleen's family had definite worries about her marriage. They described Damas as a loose cannon who would take away Gurleen's cell phone and be rude to her family. Her brother, McKendie Dew, 23 years old, told the Branton Herald that you'd never know what he'd do. As McKendie had lived with Dumas for a few years, he would really be speaking from experience. So I kind of trust what he has to say here. However, he hadn't realized his sister was being abused until January 2009, when the arrest and everything took place. Now, a bit more about that incident. Adonis had hit her while she held their baby girl Morgan in her arms, and records indicate that he strangled her, ripped her shirt off, causing the baby to slip out of her mother's hands and fall to the floor. The caseworker indicated that the other children were outside playing and were utterly terrified by what had happened. The oldest boys were interviewed and described seeing their parents fighting all the time. Zach, age 9, described how he would take all of the children in a bedroom when the abuse occurred. Oh my God, here is this poor little guy handling the situation like an adult at nine years old, protecting his siblings, and if Zach tried to call 911, so he even knows about 911, his father would hit him in the hands and his head. While the police had been called only a handful of times, this time we know he was taken into custody. So we can now see why Gurleen filed for that restraining order. And we all know that when you are trying to leave, it gets get worse. Once Damas knew Gurleen was leaving him, he didn't waste any time. 24 hours after the mention of divorce, Damas ambushed her on her return from public. Restrained her with rope and duct tape, 55 yards of it. You guys can do the math. That's more than half a football field of duct tape. He literally basically laid a message out, you're not going anywhere, and slashed her throat in the family townhouse. He then hunted down each of his five children. Each child died from a throat, bending the fully knife in the process. <sighs> Rejecting suicide because it might keep them out of heaven, It's convenient, right? That they both chose to do this. They chose to ignore thou shalt not kill. Is that the first commandment? It's like the seventh. Yeah. And both rejected suicide because they wouldn't get into heaven. So we'll talk about denial. Like, that is literally what's happening here. This is textbook. Yeah. Donna fled to the airport and flew to Haiti to escape punishment. And in Port au Prince, Haiti's capital, Hit out in a house next to a low budget hotel where authorities found him several days later. Under arrest, Damas confessed. As far as he was concerned, his guilt was never in doubt. He claimed he planned to turn himself in, but he, he, listen, he's hiding when he's found, which, you know, just negates that whole thing. In his confession to FBI agents, he claimed that bad spirits made him slit his wife's throat and murder his five children. Working toward an insanity defense much? That like it. According to police documents, Damas also had a list of culprits who drove him to murder. One culprit was his wife, Gerlene, for daring to try to leave him. Damas stated he killed his wife because he knew if he let her go, she'd call the police on him. He then killed Marvin, 6, Maven, 5, and Megan, 4, He then actually considered leaving his eldest son, Zach, eight, and baby Morgan, who was just about one, alive. His reasoning was, if you can call it reasoning, went like this. Oh my goodness, I'm going to jail for the rest of my life, and they are going to give me the death penalty. But then the voices said to him, you've got two more left. You're going to die anyway. If you're going to leave those two behind, her mom will have custody of them. And I said, oh, hell no, I don't want to give her mom custody. And I went upstairs and I cut the little ones. So, Damas didn't want his mother-in-law, Therese Medor, whom he, quote, could not stand, who had put a voodoo hex on him, to have custody of his two remaining children. Yeah, according to him, she was another culprit. Note the spin here. He is the victim of evil. Nesik Damas is the victim here. It is Unfreaking believable that he's the victim here and these people are the culprits. Yep, he's the victim. Despite the blame shifting, Dama said consistently that he wanted death and he wanted it quickly, all the sooner to reunite him with his family. Don't think he's actually gonna go to heaven. Do you think that journalists could explain it to him when they meet up? Yeah, in purgatory, hell. I don't know. <laughs> oh, in the Inferno. Yes. And the ninth Ring, yeah. Like, this is delusion and all this from the crimes that he's actually committed. Yeah. And his father, Jean Damas, agreed that his son deserves a death penalty. But you know what? In my opinion, if death is what he wants, why give it to him? Make him rot. I can live with that. I can't remember. Life in prison or death penalty, what's cheaper? Oh, gosh, I don't know with all the appeals and everything. I'm not sure. My tax dollars can go to making this guy not get the death penalty, if that keeps him away from what he ultimately wants. Because why give it to him? Yeah, let him sit behind bars. Yeah. Florida. It should be noted that Dr. Alice Cantave, program officer for Haiti of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, explained at the time that Thomas was trying to justify his action in failing. Quote, in this context, good is Christianity and evil is voodoo. You hide behind that. It's not my fault. It's the evil spirit, even though there's no such thing in voodoo. He's saying in a way, I did good by killing my wife because she was evil. It wasn't him. End quote. Hit the nail on the head. This guy who wants the death penalty isn't really responsible for the killings. Evil did that, not him. It's a crock of crap, especially when we know voodoo isn't evil. You can't use this to justify killing your family. Yeah, you know, it's trying, but then it doesn't wash. And that was another difficulty for Dennis. Voodoo actually doesn't condone evil doing. Neither of us professes to be an expert in voodoo, but another professor, Mark Rowe, director of the Haitian Institute at the University of Massachusetts Boston, stated in 2009 that the core principles of voodoo are valuing good and healing. It's wrong for Demons to use voodoo as a scapegoat for awful behavior. And obviously he can't blame himself, but guess what? It was him. He was angry and he lost it. His wife wanted to leave and wanted to take everything from him. And he couldn't handle it. It was spite and rage, not some evil hex or spirit. We're saying it wasn't the damn voodoo. Yeah. Fun fact. No. I would love a fun fact. I need a fun fact. I thought it was the perfect space. There, Here we go. CIA World Factbook says 84% of Haiti is Catholic, but about 58% practice voodoo. Many harbor both beliefs at the same time. And in Haiti, voodoo was recognized as an official religion in 2003. Snap! 2003. That surprised me. I'm surprised, too. Yeah, I did not expect that. No, I was expecting, you know, um, so... I mean, I mean, right. really, yeah. I mean, I was just surprised. They've heard about it in books for a very long time, all right? Yeah. right. It doesn't end with his confession, no matter how much we want it to end. American justice is just too complicated all right. for all of this. Evidence of a possibly diseased mind put Damas at the center of a turbulent eight-year courtroom circus. Conflicting psychological diagnoses flip-flop on his competency to stand trial. His wild, disruptive behavior in court confused the proceedings further. Delay after delay after delay. You know, one day he's refusing to speak to his attorneys, and the next day he's a chatterbox and won't shut up. And occasionally he would shout out and start preaching about Jesus. Oh, and then he wants to represent himself, because, you know, that always goes so well when you're dealing with the death penalty. Now, defense attorneys have an important job to do, and in this case, they have a very, very difficult client. Domus was diagnosed with having both traumatic brain injury and schizophrenia as possible mitigating factors against death penalty, and yet he still would not cooperate with his defense team. Brace yourself, okay? Okay. To his credit, in 2017, Domus said this, that he did not want to go to trial to save his family and his wife's family from having to see the gruesome crime scene and autopsy photos. He says, quote, Is that what you guys want, to bring tears to people's eyes? It's not right. I take full responsibility for these actions. Let me go through this by myself. I don't want my people, my wife's people, to go through this again. End quote. Huh. All right, so I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't either. And he's come a long way since he's blaming hexes and spirits in, in 2009. But after more court shenanigans go on, in October in 2017, in the Florida Circuit Court, finally sentenced him to death six times over, and he enters Florida's death row at that time. Florida's Supreme Court Judge Christine Breider affirmed all six death sentences in January 2019. I gather he hasn't been executed yet, but I really want the Doe family to finally rest knowing the justice is done. So whatever they want, I want. Nothing is going to bring back Gurleen, Zach, Marvin, Maven, Megan, or more. I actually checked the news. He's not dead yet. I still think the death penalty is too good for him. Yeah. But I agree it would bring some closure to the family. One of the points, though, that we do want to make is if you or someone you know is the victim of domestic violence or child abuse, we beg to please, please go get help. It does not get better on its own, so please reach out to a shelter or experts. Do it cautiously. Women and Gender Studies professor Betty Jo Barrett of the University of Windsor in Canada has done an amazing amount of research into intimate partner violence. And she told CBS.ca that, quote, research has shown the risk of domestic homicide becomes highest during the period of separation and the intensity of domestic violence escalates when the abused person decides to leave the relationship, end quote. Abusers feel their power and control slipping, so they escalate, trying to force the woman to remain. Leaving an abusive partner puts women in potentially life-threatening danger, and on average, leaving takes six attempts. Yeah. Six. Many leave feeling vulnerable, have regrets, they genuinely love their abuser, Struggling financially, they're stressed, they worry about the impact on children, living conditions, massive doubts, everything comes into question when you're leaving something that you know so well. And the abuser promises to change. Begging begins, crying, pleading. This is why you need to put sufficient time between your exit and the abuser's claims that he's changed. Never forget that this is a cycle. Do not fall for the latency of the honeymoon phase. Rest assured, it will happen again. Listen, guys, contact your local women's shelters. Make a safe plan. We've got links on our blog at www.murdershelpedbookclub.com. Help is there. It can and it does get better. Believe it. And there it is, folks. Hopefully you are reading through Lost Girls by Robert Coker on the Long Island serial killer case. This is a really unsettling story about the deaths of five young women, largely ignored by law enforcement when they went missing over the course of three years, Maureen in 2007, Melissa and Megan in 2009, and Amber and Shannon in 2010. All but one of their bodies were discovered on Gilgo Beach, Long Island a deserted and overgrown seven-mile stretch of shoreline on a string of barrier islands in proximity to New York City. In a bizarre light of publicity, when the bodies are discovered, law enforcement comes to the realization that they are now faced with one of the most skillful and accomplished serial killers in New York City since the son of Sam, David Berkowitz. This unsolved case remains daunting, terrifying, and disturbing at so many levels. We cannot wait to discuss it with you. Cannot wait. And thank you so much, Murder Bookies, for listening. Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or shoot us an email at Jill at MurderShelfbook dot com. That's J I L L A N D T A R A at M U R D E R S H E L F B O O K C L U B dot C O M. Yes, I spelled it out for the first time ever. you did good. We'd love to hear from you. Follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Pandora, mm. Podbean, iHeartRadio, just about anywhere where you can find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a five star review. We certainly love to see your feedback. And until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Stay safe, Stay healthy. Get help if you need it.